Thank you, Tommy. We've met here for the purpose of worship, and certainly worship consists of a lot of things, not the least, <coughs> excuse me, not the least of which is prayer. So we're going to start this morning with a, a silent prayer. You think about uh, what you want to pray for. I'm going to recommend that certainly we pray for our election. And uh, if you haven't voted, please vote. And uh, we want to pray for all of our leadership. And uh, pray for one another. Pray for the service today. And that the word would get out and it would be crystal clear. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Let us pray. Silent prayer. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Alright, I'm going to use the prerogative of the chair, if you will. Use a parliamentary term. uh, And uh, ask you to pray for Leslie, who will have her eye surgery tomorrow. So if you would, I would appreciate that. And then now, with reference to announcements, well, we also have a prayer list over there. I'll announce that now. Uh, get a copy and use it, please. Uh, we do have, uh, of course, uh, a Wednesday night service. It's prayer meeting at 6.30. And at 7 o'clock we have a Bible study in the book of John. We're going to be beginning uh, actually a new doctrine that's precipitated by what we have in the book of John in the 14th chapter. But uh, it's the doctrine of the kingdom, and that is a very complicated doctrine and one that is needed so badly because so many people read the Gospels and, and don't make the kingdom applications. So if you want to come, please come. Uh, that's uh, your, of course, decision. So 6.30 prayer meeting, 7 o'clock Bible study. And now let's go to uh, another aspect of worship called giving. I've turned the famous chart, famous because we let you see it every week, but it's so, uh, so clear in terms of indicating what we are to do in this, the age of the church, <coughs> excuse me, uh, age of the Church uh, gives us our instructions, and you can find them in Second Corinthians chapter eight, and Second Corinthians chapter nine, and then we also have at the end of the book of Romans a little bit about giving. Uh, but as you know, we don't tithe, we don't sacrificially give, we don't beg God for things, we don't uh, uh, do many of the things that are. Recommended in our major denominations like subscribing to the budget. Uh, we don't do that either. But what we do do in this church is we do 
recognize that we follow the principles of New Testament giving. And in summary, uh, 2 Corinthians 8, 12, For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one doesn't have. And I think that pretty well gives indication that if you want to give, you can give when we have a moment of silent prayer, of course, in the privacy of your mind, because you wanted to give. Uh, God doesn't always bless us. Sometimes He tests us. Uh, and uh, that doesn't mean we can't give. You can still give because it's the want to that's important. Again, Willingness. Now, in 2 Corinthians 9 7, we have further instruction summarized, uh, and that is uh, don't give if you can't give hilariously, as the old Baptist preacher said once that I heard. Uh, if you can't give, and you can't give without attachment, then uh, please don't give. So we're not here asking for money, but we're trying to explain what the Scripture has to say about giving. So with all of that said, we're going to have a moment of silent prayer now. You think about giving. If you want to give, you gave. And uh, then I'm going to close by asking God's blessing upon the gift. <clears throat> I'm having trouble this morning. <clears throat> the gift and the giver. And... Uh, uh, you make application as you see fit. Let us pray. Thank you, Father, for the, for the privilege of living in this, the United States of America. Now, I would ask a very special blessing upon the gift and the giver and also on the rest of our service. For I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, now we're going to have uh, another aspect of worship, which is music. And uh, Ken, if you would, let's see if we can do number four. Uh, and if we're going to hear Emily sing again by way of a CD.
I will be so glad when we're able to get our hymnals and uh, sing congregationally. Uh, maybe uh, the next week or two we'll do that. We have a lot of rules and regulations we're supposed to be following, and we try to follow most of them. All right, last week I taught in part 2 Timothy 4, 3 through 5 by way of the doctrine of false communicators. As an introduction, uh, we reviewed and and in fact displayed several very important books used by this pastor in developing the doctrine of the authenticity of the Bible and also the doctrine of canonicity both of which have been recently published on our podcast and, of course, also on our westbankbiblechurch.com. So you can certainly go to westbankbiblechurch.com, streaming audio services, and uh, see both the written lesson and also listen to the to the audio lesson. All right, uh, so display, displayed last week on our remembrance table. We had the Septuagint. We had an article with artistic pictorials from a beautiful coffee table book and an article entitled Ptolemy. And then we had a Hebrew scroll. And then we had Josephus' history book covering what is known as the interim period and that spanned 450 B.C. to 4 B.C. Now, if you want to know what I said about them, as Casey Stengel would say, look it up. And you can look it up on the internet, of course, or on the podcast. All right, before we continue that study, I want to give you opportunity to use 1 John 1, 9, as may or may not be necessary. Let us pray. Thank you, Father, for the privilege of being able to study your word. Thank you for the indwelling and the filling of the Holy Spirit as as we choose to cite sin back to you. As again, the Holy Spirit shows us. So uh, guide us now and direct us. Teach us. I will present and the Holy Spirit on the promise of the word will teach. For I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, again I want to review some of that learned last week and then begin new material on page 2 where we were studying a few New Testament examples of false teachers. First let me read you the New International Version of 2 Timothy 4, 3, 4, and 5. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine but after their own lusts shall they heap to themselves teachers, having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth, and shall be turned into fables. But watch thou in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, make full proof of thy ministry. And again, by way of review, of course, we know that the book is written by Paul to Timothy. Timothy is in Ephesus. Paul is in prison in Rome, at the Mamertine prison. Now let's uh, do a little more review here. There were numerous false communicators actively resisting our Lord during the kingdom age. And uh, if you choose, you can come Wednesday night and learn a lot about the kingdom. They were primarily the religious hierarchy consisting of scribes, Pharisees, and Sadducees. And we noted that in Matthew chapter 15, verses 1 through 3, and chapter 16, verses 1 through 4. I'm going to put our dispensation chart on the board uh, as we talk about uh, our lesson today. Uh, And for our folks out there in the uh, computer land... Uh, it will be on your lesson plan, uh, which of course will be part and parcel of uh, our screening audio of services. All right, there have been and still are numerous false teachers abounding in the church age, as with false teachers of every age. They are to be critiqued based upon the content of their teaching. 
And our last point indicated that uh, during the kingdom age, or the age of the kingdom, or the age of the hypostatic union, or the time when Christ was on the face of the earth, uh, that was what we like to refer to, I do, as the kingdom age. And uh, you can see it on the chart. It certainly is, is uh, part and parcel of the age of Israel, because it's a time when Christ was on the face of the earth. And uh, it will end with the church age, or as we like to say, an interim age, just in advance of the church age, an age called the interim age, because it's really not kingdom age and it's really not church age yet. It's an interim. And uh, we'll be talking more about that on Wednesday night. All right, there have been and still are numerous false teachers abounding in the, the church age. As with false teachers of every age, they are to be critiqued based upon the content of their teaching. And as you can see from our dispensation chart, you'll see the various ages. But in every age, there will be false teachers. Even in the millennium, more specifically at the end of the millennium, we will have false teaching. All right, there were false teachers in Corinth teaching there was no bodily resurrection. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verses 14 through 16. There were false teachers in Corinth who also were critical of Paul's speech, his devotion to grace, and his appearance. It is interesting to note Paul says false teachers often are glib entertainers who have little substance. And we saw what he had to say in 2 Corinthians 11, 1 through 28 about these characters. All right, there were false teachers at Jerusalem who mixed Judaism and Christianity. And we saw Hebrews 3, 5 through 9, 4, 8 through 16 in 5:11 through 14 where they are indeed described there were false teachers who came from Jerusalem to Galatia particularly Antioch to teach a doctrine of salvation and spiritual spirituality by faith and works all right uh, these false teachers also taught false doctrine about circumcision which Paul successfully resisted and we studied that in Acts 15, 5 to 11. And then there were false teachers teaching post-tribulation or post-tribulationism. They seemed to abound in Thessalonica. And we were about to look when time expired at Second Thessalonians 2, 1 through 12. And uh, we've actually done that today by way of a chart that describes the three types of eschatological theory. There's the pre-tribulation, which we are here, which means the church age is going to end with the rapture of the church. Then seven years of the tribulation, and then Christ returns for his millennial reign. And then after that, we have the uh, destruction of planet Earth, the great white throne, and eternity future. Then there is the mid-tribulation group, which thinks and believes that the rapture will occur in the middle of the tribulation, and then Christ will return for a thousand years. And then after that, of course, the destruction of planet Earth, the great white throne, and eternity future. Then there is the post-tribulation gang, and uh, they believe that the rapture and the return of Christ are actually the same thing, then the thousand years, and then the eternity and there is then, of course, amillennialism, which is really not uh, not uh, uh, a tribulation, either post, either pre or mid, uh, but uh, it's uh, actually that there is no there is no tribulation per se, other than what we're experiencing today, and that's basically basically a theory of Catholicism where we're all working hard and uh, we're improving the world and improving the world and it's getting better and better and better. And when it really gets good, then Christ can come back. So eschatology, it's a very little, I would not even call it an eschatological theory. 
All right, there were false teachers who tried to put church-age saints back under the Mosaic Law. And uh, let's take a look at 1 Timothy 1, 3, reading all the way through verse uh, 11. All right, so here we go. 1 Timothy 1, 3 through 11. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia... Stay there, talking again to Timothy, in Ephesus, so that you may command certain men not to teach false doctrines any longer, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. These promote controversies rather than God's work, which is, of course, by faith. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Some have wandered away from these and turned to meaningless talk. They want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know they are teaching or talking about or not what they're teaching or talking about or even what they so confidently affirm. We know that the law is good if one uses it properly. We know that law is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, and for those who kill their fathers or mothers and for murderers in general, for adulterers and perverse, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine that conforms to the glorious gospel of the blessed God which is entrusted to us. So I'm sure as I read that, you get the idea that we are far from that today. We are, of course, uh, not fulfilling it. In fact, we brazenly and very proudly uh, describe contrary uh, ideas. Now let's take a look very quickly at the law. We heard teachers of the law mentioned by, again, Paul to Timothy in this First Timothy set of passages. And I'm going to read you from Exodus chapter 20. I'm going to read verses 3 through 10. And you can pick what are the Ten Commandments out of there if you so choose. I'm not going to be here to tell you that these are the Ten Commandments. I'm just going to tell you this is where you can find them. So here we go. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourselves an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath, or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless, who misses, or excuse me, misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your manservant or maidservant, nor your animals, nor the alien within your gates. All right, now let's go to... Verse 11, For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. But he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his manservant or maidservant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Then in Proverbs six sixteen through 19, we find a list of seven things the Lord hates. Six things the Lord hates, says the Scripture. No, seven, saith the Lord. And then he lists the, these things. So you have information there about the law as given to us by Moses in the book of Exodus. You have, again, uh, uh, the writer of Proverbs 
who provided information to you. Uh, and then you have what Colonel R.B. Theme used to say. I'll put him in good company. He used to say, this is the freedom code rather than the Mosaic law. And then you have Paul, of course, who said, you know, you'll never get saved by keeping the law because you can't do it. For by grace are you saved through faith in that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. That's how you get access. But there were people who were teaching, as we just read in First Timothy. They were teaching you to keep the law, as also you find in the book of Galatia, uh, or Galatians. And we've studied that book here in this church. Uh, and it caused a great deal of controversy, so much so that Paul said, you cannot, you, you're wrong for doing that, uh, Peter. You're wrong for doing that, Barnabas, and uh, other folks. And they had quite a little contretemps, if you will, uh, over the whether or not to, you are to require the Gentiles to keep the law. And you remember we went over that last week, how they all went. And it's described in the 15th chapter of the book of Acts, the visit that Paul, Barnabas, and others uh, made their way down to talk to James because the people who were had come to Antioch in particular in the province of Galatia uh, were saying, you know, you, you, we've got to teach the Gentiles to keep the law. They can't be saved by just faith alone in Christ alone. So Paul was shaking his head, I'm sure. Oh my gosh, oh my gosh. Where did they get that kind of trash? So I think uh, we all better go down there and see. Because they came from Jerusalem. So James was in charge of all the Christian churches in in uh, Jerusalem. And uh, uh, you can read more about that in the book of Hebrews. But uh, he said, let's go there. And of course they made a trip. And as they went, they witnessed to people. Scripture is very clear to uh, teach us that. And so they went down to... See James, and James said, I never told those turkeys to go down there and see you and to spread this false doctrine. I've never taught that. I wouldn't teach that. That's absurd. I don't understand that. But that was after a long conference because all of the hierarchy and the churches down there got together. And they weren't really convinced when the meeting started. But after Peter gave his testimony about how he went to see Cornelius and the God, the Holy Spirit, appeared to him with the training aid in the sky. And uh, he went in there and went inside the house and preached to them Jesus. And as a result of his preaching Jesus, uh, they believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. And then the Holy Spirit came upon them just as he did uh, the Jews when they believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. That was back when tongues were appropriate. And the tongues came upon them. So he gave his magnificent testimony, then Paul gave his magnificent testimony, and then everybody agreed because James said, I agree. We should not teach that they have to keep the law. They can't keep the law, we can't keep the law, so let's not be, you know, silly and say, you know, we all have to keep the law, you know, in order for salvation. So, very interesting sequence of events, very interesting study. I love teaching the book of Galatia. Uh, there's a couple of verses in there for I'm crucified with Christ nevertheless I live yet not I but Christ liveth in me in the life I now live in the flesh I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me those two verses are my favorites so do not frustrate the grace of God for if righteousness comes by keeping the law why Christ could have just stayed at home you know where it was really pleasant no, 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 no. You can't do that. But uh, nonetheless, uh, the freedom code, like for example, thou shalt not kill. Free to live. You know, free to live. Thou shalt have your own property and you keep your own property. Free to keep property. You know, and so forth and so forth and so forth. But I love how the colonel handed that. The freedom code. All right, now let's go to Point seven, point seven. There are false teachers who, it would seem, love to obfuscate the truth with speculation, which at least in part contradicts the Scripture. Excuse me. They love to wax eloquent with reference to knowledge, science, etc. First Timothy chapter six, verses twenty and twenty-one. 
All right, First uh, Timothy six twenty. Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to your care. Turn away from godless chatter and the opposing ideas of what is falsely called knowledge. In verse twenty one, that was twenty, which some have professed and in so doing have wandered from the faith. Grace be with you. All right, false teachers in every age perversely, pervasively, excuse me, and perversely, will abound in various forms spanning the gamut from do-gooder legalists to antinomian despisers of morality. 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 4. And I shall read, but mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying His power, having nothing to do, have nothing to do with them. They are the kind who worm their way into homes and gain control over weak-willed women who are loaded down with sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires, always learning but never able to acknowledge the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so also these men oppose the truth. Men of depraved minds who, as far as the faith is concerned, are rejected. But they will not get very far because as in the case of those men, their folly will be clear to everyone. You, however, know all about teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions, sufferings, what kind of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, the persecutions I endured, yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life, hear up people, who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil men and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. And then I provided a map uh, which certainly shows the first missionary journey. How uh, in Antioch that we talked about where the false teachers came. And then, uh, of course, on that first missionary journey, Paul and Barnabas went down to Cyprus. You remember they traveled over to the capital, which is Paphos. They met the governor, and he uh, was he was uh, call it uh, influenced by one of his assistants, uh, probably secretary of something. But anyway, he uh, uh, told them, you know. This guy's crazy. This guy, Paul, my goodness, yes. And Barnabas, sure, he's a big property owner here, but we're not going to listen to him. And, of course, Paul turned to him and, oh, my goodness, probably took his index finger and said, you're blind. And he was blind, and he had people leading him around for some time. And that caused the governor of the island to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Then, of course, he went on his journey and established churches at all those places you can see there. You have two Antiochs there. That's because of Antioch Epiphanes. And uh, they were, uh, uh, of course, uh, evangelized. And then they, he returned. And then, as a result of the meeting with James, he returned, returned back to, to uh, Antioch. Uh, we had the little contretemps between, uh, once again, Paul and Barnabas and uh, Silas, of course, who had been sent with a letter from James because he was considered to be quite the guy. They would believe him because he had a reputation of being a fine man. Uh, and then, of course, uh, because of the contretemps, because of the argument, uh, we had two missionary journeys. In other words, uh, instead of going with Paul and, and Barnabas going, uh, Barnabas took his nephew and uh, Paul took Silas and they went on the second missionary journey and for the first time they crossed over there at where you see Troas they crossed over into Europe and uh, you can read all about that in the book of Acts or you 
can uh, take a look and see what we've got on the internet in the way of our doctrine of Paul. We have an extensive doctrine of Paul and an extensive doctrine of David all under Pastor Merritt's study books. Alright, now then, also take a look at where uh, Crete is and uh, has a city there named Fair Havens. And I, I did, you learn a lot from a lot of different people, but I learned from Wayne Warren that Popeye uh, was involved with Fair Havens. And I never studied Popeye very much, but Wayne studied him extensively. And uh, he told me that Fair Havens is... Uh, in the stories about Popeye. But uh, I remember olive oil. Oh, good old olive oil. She was a dandy. But let's go on now and just keep that in mind because I'm going to read you something from Titus. And uh, Titus talks about things that happened on the island of Crete. Actually, Paul talks to Titus about things he is to do on the island of Crete. All right, here we go. Paul says on the island of Crete there are false teachers who love to speak of the merits of the law, discoursing on genealogies, endless contentions, and pontifications. Paul urges Titus to confront these false communicators and to protect the congregants by urging pastors to teach sound doctrine. Let me read Titus chapter 1, verses 10, 11, 12, 13, and 14. Alrighty, you can see where where the activity was taking place on the map. Says for there are many rebellious people. Now he's he's not going to say a lot of good things about the folks there on that island. He says for there are many rebellious people, mere talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced because they are ruining whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach, and that for the sake of dishonest gain. Even one of their own prophets has said, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. Then he says, this testimony is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in the faith and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or to the commands of those who reject the truth. So you can see, and we'll read more, uh, in Titus in chapter 3 in just a second. But uh, Paul was uh, a reader, not just of parchments and scrolls, but apparently he also wrote books about poets because he knew what the poets said about the Cretans. And uh, that's interesting to me. Well-read man. All right, uh, and he didn't, he, he called it like it was, in other words. He didn't mince any words liars and gluttons and this is true so uh now who what what uh i wonder what uh, good old titus thought about that when paul left the island he left titus in charge and said here's all what i want you to do read the book of titus i've studied the book of titus with you once before but uh that was some time ago all right now let's look at verse 9 and 10 but avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and and quarrels about the law, because these are unprofitable and useless. Warn a divisive person once, and then warn him a second time. After that, have nothing to do, nothing to do with him. All right, now let's go on here. Peter warned. Now we're going to talk about the apostle Peter. Peter warns against the perils of false teachers in Second Peter two one through three. All right, first he warns, but there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive, he refers back to the Old Testament there. They will, now we're back to those that are around in the New Testament times, just like in the Old Testament times. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them bringing swift destruction on themselves, discipline. For many will follow their shameful ways and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. In their greed, these teachers will exploit you with stories they have made up. Their condemnation has long been hanging over them and their destruction has not been sleeping. And that would include both believers and unbelievers. Remember, 
For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. So even the sons get disciplined when out of line. Alright, now John in First John chapter 2 verses 18 and 19 warns against false teachers much in the same way as did Peter. These false teachers like those warned against by Peter would deny the Lord that bought them. They would gain a following and cast a shadow on the way of truth. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. Dear children, says First John, says John in First John 2, verses 18 and 19, Dear children, this is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, Even now many antichrists have come, those who are against Christ. This is how we know it is the last hour. They And what does he mean by the last hour? Right before the rapture of the church. Alright, they went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. In other words, he wasn't their pastor teacher. So they went their way, and that by their going their way was evidence that they didn't belong to us. Now, how significant that not belonging was, I don't know. Were they did, did they were they unbelievers and just faking their faith in Christ? I don't know. That'd be wild supposition on my part. They could have been solid citizens who uh, had gone astray, because indeed, even as believers, from time to time. We go astray. We turn negative to the Word. Sad tale, but true. And that's why we have to have, again, a little discipline from time to time, and a little reward from time to time, a whole lot of discipline from time to time, and a whole lot of reward from time to time. Because He knows our frame. He knows what we need. And we can then therefore say in all things, all things work together for the good to them that love God. Who them who are the called according to his purpose. Alright, now let's go on. Gonna read, uh, in, in, uh, 1 John 2, 22 through 23, we have a warning that little antichrists abound who deny the Father and the Son. Alright, uh, now then, let me, let, I, I'm gonna read again, 712, if I didn't read it, but, uh, here we go. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. And then, of course, we have the warning about there will be a lot of people who will be against Christ. Now, let's go to 1 John 2, 22-23. We have a warning that little antichrists abound who deny the Father and the Son. Notice 1 John 2, 22, who is a liar? But he that denieth that Jesus is the Christ, he is anti-Christ that denieth the Father and the Son. And then verse 23, whoever denieth the Son, the same hath not the Father. He that acknowledgeth the Son hath the Father also. Alright, then there is judgment. There is judgment of false teachers and it's a certainty. Let's see what we've got here in Second Peter chapter 2. Verses 1, reading through verse 9. And this is a familiar passage to you because it has a little bit of eschatological, well, it has a whole lot of eschatological application. And as you know, uh, we have taught a lot of doctrines about eschatology in this church, and I think most of you are quite skilled in that area. So here we go. But there were false teachers also among the people, and we've read this, even as there shall be false teachers among you, who privately shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them, and bring upon themselves swift destruction. And many shall follow their pernicious ways, by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. And through covetousness they with feigned words make merchandise of you, whose judgment now of a long time lingereth not, and their damnation slumbereth not. And then have have an eschatological point here. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, these are the angels that you'll recall, 
described in the sixth chapter of the book of Genesis. This is one of three uh, verses in the New Testament about the, the angels who sinned by leaving their first estate. And then you have Jude, you have in Peter, uh, in his, his verses. And you have even in the book of Hebrews. Alright, for if God did not spare angels when they sinned, those angels were the angels who sinned and are described in the sixth chapter of the book of Genesis. But sent them to hell. And the word for hell, that's the first time and the only time it's used in the Greek as tartarao or tartarao or tartarus. Uh, it's used in, as a verb and it's used as a, a, a verb which is sometimes used as a noun because it's uh, often done in the Greek that way. So I went ahead and put the verb for him there. I didn't put in Tartarus. Tartarus does not appear, by the way, in the New Testament. And this is the only time Tartarao, and the vocabulary for him is Tartarus, appears in Scripture. So it's not Gehenna, and it's not any of the other words for hell, uh, but it's a, a special word. So again, it proves that Paul read other things because it appears in Scripture as a description of a very, very evil place where only the most evil of angels are sent. So Paul pulled that out of another writing. And there was a secular writing. Oh, that's a good description, that word of where they're going to be. So that's where they are even, if you will, today. They're down there in Tartarus or Tartarao. Uh, voc- uh, vocabulary form, of course, in, in the Greek. Putting them into gloomy dungeons to be held for judgment. And most think, as do I, that that judgment occurs at the end of the millennium, just at the end, because these fellows are le- released. Call them fellows. They're fallen demons. They're special demons. They've been down there. And this is also a place where Christ went uh, to go down there and let them know that he was victorious so in one of his trips, if you will, while he was in the grave, he went down to Tartarao and uh, let them know. Again, I think he shook his finger at him and said, Aha, I won. You see, because it's dark and gloomy and they don't know. And part of the angelic conflict means they have to know. They need to know. Because it's over. It is over. All right, he had, they'd been put in gloomy dungeons to be held for judgment. I always think about him down there where it's dark and it's gloomy and there's fire going on and the windows are all fogged over with soot. And Christ has to take the soot away and say, look. They all had to come to the window and look. And He said, I was victorious on the cross. I beat you. I beat you. So the angelic conflict requires them to know. And we have a doctrine of the angelic conflict. If you don't know about it, you need to read about it. Pastor Mary's study books. Alright, if he did not spare the angels, this is talking about the certainty of judgment. It's certain those guys are going to be judged. Alright, down there in Tartarus. Alright, if he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on the ungodly people, another example, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others. If he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. If he rescued Lot, a righteous man, who was distressed by the filthy lives of the lawless men, for that righteous man living among them day after day, was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. If this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue godly men from trials and to hold the unrighteous for the day of judgment while continuing their punishment. So we have some assurances there that judgment will take place and we can relax about it. We don't have to worry about judgment for this guy or judgment for that gal. Uh, it's, It's going to happen. It's a certainty. Uh, so we can just relax about things like that. And that would certainly include the election. We need to relax about the election. Uh, and that's uh, uh, something that the, our faith rest drill teaches. You know, that all things are working together for the good. And not only that, all things work together in your life, regardless of whether you like it or not. Regardless of whether I like it or not. So it's important for us to understand that. Because we're demonstrating the angelic conflict. You know, 
Can we relax? Can we have the RMA, right mental attitude? It's important. All right, uh, the characteristics of false teachers are enumerated by Peter. Their fleshly self-indulgence is recounted and their rejection of authority. Second Peter 2, 10 through 12. Let me read. This is especially true of those who follow the corrupt desire of the sinful nature and despise authority. Bold and arrogant these men are. They're not afraid to slander even celestial beings. All right, a point or two about authority. We do have a doctrine of authority on the internet. Uh, under Again, Pastor Mary's study books. But just a point or two about uh, an organizational chart. God has an organ, a table of organization, as we would say in the military. Uh, we have a, a, a chart. God has a chart. We use the chart. We have different charts, you know, that we use for authority. But this is just a quickie. All right. Father over Jesus and the Holy Spirit. We have talked about that before, you know, where uh, the Father came up with the plan. Uh, Jesus agreed to execute the plan. And uh, the Holy Spirit agreed to reveal the plan. So the Father over Jesus and the Holy Spirit. Jesus over all things. Husband over the wife. Parents over children. Bosses over employees. Government leaders over citizens. Teachers over students. All right, and certainly in the way of teachers, pastor teachers over their congregations. All right, the principle of authority and its value is established early in the Scriptures. A co-equal Jesus and Holy Spirit agreed to get under the authority of the Father. Alright, Second Peter chapter 2, 11 and 12, which we have seen before. Yet even angels, though they are stronger and more powerful, do not bring slanderous accusations against such beings in the presence of the Lord. But these men blaspheme in matters they do not understand. They are like brute beasts, creatures of instinct, born only to be caught and destroyed and like beasts, they too will perish. And you'll remember in particular that he's talking about what happened when, uh, once again, in the uh, eschatological age, one of the uh, angels, uh, Michael, for example, makes the statement that he wouldn't take on Satan uh, unless the Lord Jesus said to take on Satan. And of course, it won't be until... Uh, the uh, tribulation uh, in the middle of the tribulation that uh, he takes on Michael takes on old Diabolos if you will so I'm trying to think of a good name for him he's got several names but not the least of which is Lucifer son of the morning so he takes on and casts him out of heaven but we've studied that in the book of the revelation once again the entire book is on the internet it's quite lengthy but uh you can get look at it on the home page even. We've had the book of the Revelation pulled out from underneath Master Mary's study books so that you can find it quite readily. Alright, their perversion of Christianity is warned against uh, in Second Peter chapter two, verse thirteen. They will be paid back with harm for the harm they have done. Their idea of pleasure is to carouse in broad daylight. They are blots and blemishes, revelings in their pleasures while they feast with you. All right, their moral instability, that is the false teachers, is described in Second Peter 2.14. With eyes full of adultery, they never stop sinning. They seduce the unstable. They are experts in greed and a cursed brood. All right, they're crassly selfish motivation is described as being similar to Balaam. You remember we studied Balaam and Balak, no doubt. You'll recall that, and we do have that doctrine on the internet. False teachers are often motivated by approbation, prestige, and monetary gain. Alright, verse 15 of Second Peter, they have left their straight way and wandered off to follow the way of Balaam, son of Beor, who loved the wages of wickedness. 
their spiritual barrenness, even though saved, is further delineated in 1 Peter 2, 20 through verse 22. And I'll read those three verses. If they have escaped corruption in the world by knowing our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and are again entangled in it and overcome, they are worse off at the end than they were at the beginning. Oh yes, discipline galore. It would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than to have known it and then turned their backs on the sacred command that was passed on to them. Of them the Proverbs are true. A dog returns to his vomit and a sow that is washed goes back to her wallowing in the mud. Alright, we're going to stop right there since it's time and we're going to uh, have our invitation. So if your eyes bow on your head... Uh, uh, your head bowed and your eyes closed, if you will. Uh, <clears throat> I'm going to pause and uh, let those who may be without Christ, without hope, and without eternal life to remedy that situation. And there is only one remedy. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father except by me. So how do you do that? Well, it's simple. Now, a lot of people have made it very difficult. I've heard some strange invitations in my life. But uh, it's simple. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. And you can do that right where you are. Whatever you might be doing. You can just simply tell God the Father, I am believing on God the Son and on the promise of the Word, you will be saved. Because you see, the power is in the Word. The power is in the convicting ministry of God the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit tells you you're a sinner and you have need of salvation, then it's up to God to get the message to you. And He uses all kinds of crazy folks. Like here today, where the Scripture clearly says, For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. God sent His Son into the world, not to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. He that believeth on the Son has everlasting life. He that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth upon him. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, and not of works, lest any man should boast. And then the scripture also says, in a problem in a jail. So you might be in prison and you're listening somehow, maybe on a podcast. And the scripture clearly tells you. What must I do to be saved? Well, the answer, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. So I'm going to pause for just a moment and give opportunity to anyone who may again be without Christ. You do that, please, during this moment of silence. And then I'm going to provide our benediction. Father, we are grateful for the privilege of being able to come together in this great country of ours and to worship. Now uh, guide us and direct us throughout the rest of this week. And I would ask that God the Holy Spirit would take that which I have presented, make it real in order that we might grow in your wonderful grace and become more like our Lord and Savior, even Jesus the Christ. Amen.